0: Welcome back to Core Conversations, a CoreLogic podcast, where we dive into the heart of what makes the property market tick. I'm May-Claire Bolton-Smith, your host and curious observer of all things related to property, from affordable housing to market trends and the impacts of natural disasters to climate change. I want to converse about it all. So, we're back! It's 2022 and we're thrilled to be back with Season 2 of Core Conversations. And today, we're going to be inspecting another angle of the infinitely complex and infinitely interesting property market. So, to kick off the new season, I want to dive in and look at the effects both on insurance and homeowners of the implementation of FEMA's, the Federal Emergency Management Agency's, new flood insurance update. Known as Risk Rating 2.0, the government agency began incorporating this property-specific flood rating into the National Flood Insurance Program in October of 2021. Prior to this update, FEMA had used decades-old systems of understanding the flood risk on individual properties within a flood insurance rating system. So such a change will have far-reaching implications for not only insurers, but also program stakeholders, as well as banks and mortgage companies. So to dive into this topic today, we have with us Scott Giberson, Principal of Flood Compliance on the CoreLogic Flood Services team. Scott, welcome to Core Conversations.
1: Thank you, May Claire. You don't know how long I've been waiting for this invitation, so I really appreciate <laughs> the opportunity to be here today.
0: Well, yeah, we've been talking about having you on the podcast for so long, so I am thrilled that we get to chat about this today. So before we get into things, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your role here at CoreLogic?
1: Happy to. Well, I was on a plane earlier this week, flying back from a conference, and a lady next to me asked me what I do. So I told her, well, I'd I'd likely help her to buy every home she has ever purchased without her even knowing. What I mean by that is within each mortgage loan document, there is a single line Says flood determination fee, and that's where we come in for logic flood services. We tell the bank whether flood insurance is required on the mortgage based on the flood zone the home is or business is in. And my job as compliance principal is to help ensure that our products and services satisfy the bank's requirements because, of course, the banks have to stay in line with the laws and regulations. So, beyond that. I also work on advocacy because we want to ensure that the nation is governed by sound policy related to flooding, flood insurance, and flood maps. So I'm often out and about working on broader industry issues. Currently, I serve on the board of the National Flood Association. I'm also a member of the Technical Mapping Advisory Council that provides guidance to FEMA on its flood mapping program. Most importantly, Claire, I am a grandpa to two amazing granddaughters. (laughs) I know you're a new mom, Claire. Congratulations. Thank you. I'll just say to be sure to stick around for the next generation. It gets even better.
0: Uh, fantastic. Well, with that kind of background, Scott, you it's exactly the reason why we want to talk to you today about this exact topic and, you know, flood risk and assessing flood risk has inevitably come up in many of our podcasts before, but I, I'm just glad that we're going to dive into this topic in particular. So before we get into it too deeply, Let's start out with a little background about floods and why the federal government needed to update its flood assessment. How does this new methodology diverge from the original risk rating that FEMA has used for decades?
1: Well, great question, Claire. And there's been a number of analogies that I've heard over the last year comparing the legacy system based on flood zones to the new risk rating system. And one analogy I like of those is is it's like going from watching the analog TV, remember the old box TV with mm-hmm. rabbit ears, compared that to watching a digital cable TV on a smart TV today, and and that analogy isn't really intended to be critical of the legacy system because, as you know, in our business, FEMA's flood maps continue to play a critical role, yeah. uh, in terms of supporting the lenders with their mandatory purchase requirements, but also in terms of supporting communities across the nation with floodplain management. So. Again, FEMA flood maps continue to be important, critical for the country. This is an important point. But back to your question, strictly for insurance purposes, however, just as with the digital TV today, risk rating 2.0 takes advantage of today's data and technology to provide a more complete picture of flood risk for the entire spectrum, from the very risky to the very low risk areas. So it's not just relying on the three good channels that you used to confine on using your knob on the box television so risk rating 2.0 is looking at numerous variables related to the building and the property's flood risk and not the flood zone itself and if i can make clear answer your question why why fema you ask why is fema doing this now i was i was asked this question in the recent conference and the answer is layered one layer of the answer is similar to the answer as to why did television manufacturers cable companies and broadcasters change from supporting analog programming and products to now digital signals. So now to the point where we are now with the FCC requiring televisions to be built with a digital tube. The answer is technology progress. Mm. and progress. If, if you think about it from that perspective, the 1990s, the digital revolution began and quickly spread across much of the world for foot insurance purposes. FEMA had been relying upon the same technology for 50 years, and of course, Technology and progress would not permit that to go on forever. So, with so much available data and with the ability of supercomputers to process that data, the private industry was able to create these reliable flood catastrophe models, such as CoreLogic's flood catastrophe model, which, as you know, supports the private insurance industry yeah. for st- storm surge, riverine, and flash flooding. So, again, uh, thinking back to the why, it's because technology and data now make it possible, uh, for FEMA to take that next step into uh, into this more sophisticated
0: rating system. I love that analogy Scott and that 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 makes a lot of sense because you know something worked before and it it was fine but it can always get better and technology is advancing all around us in so many different ways and and previously we've talked about innovation and and different things in the industry that are really moving the industry forward so I I do love that FEMA is really trying to get the best assessment as possible. I know there have been a number of events. Hurricane Harvey stands out with so many people that people were underinsured from flood because they weren't in a FEMA designated flood zone because it was kind of viewed as you're either in a flood zone or out of a flood zone. And this is a way of refining that a little bit better to have a better assessment so people are more protected.
1: You're right. This this is another layer of the reasoning as to why now, and that's the pressure the FEMA's been under. You mentioned Hurricane Harvey, and we're seeing more and more uninsured flood losses increasing in numbers and severity outside of the high-risk area, and this has really been pressure mounting since Hurricane Katrina. So it's not only the uh, uninsured outside of the high-risk area, but it's also the, the debt that the program faced uh, and the pressure from from policymakers that the program was not sustainable uh, at based on the the legacy rating methodology. So there was a there was, in addition to technology, it was policy and uh, pressures uh, on FEMA that really let it down led it down this path.
0: Right. So let's dive a little bit more into that technology, I guess, when we, in your view, what are the major things that have changed with the NFIP that both borrowers and lenders will now experience? Are there new variables that they've incorporated that are new? Like what, what's changed?
1: So, importantly, this is primarily risk rate two point zero people, and was primarily a direct impact on the insurance industry and insurance professionals okay. that support the NFIP. So in estimates, the NFIP says they've trained about 35,000 agents across the country just in the last year. So from an insurance perspective, this is huge. And I will say, from my, in my opinion, the insurance industry has done a fantastic job in responding both from a company perspective and an agent perspective, they've done a lot of work. So keeping in mind, it's really about a change to way the way an insurance policy is rated. It doesn't have as much of a direct impact on the mortgage industry. But let's talk about how it does impact the mortgage industry. It's less dramatic, not as obvious, Mm -hmm. but there are changes. So in a recent poll of lender flood clients that was conducted by CoLogic, we and keep in mind, these are lender flood clients. So these are people familiar with flood insurance matters. Uh, Only about 10% responded that they have little or no knowledge of risk rate 2.0. And in the same poll of lender clients, about 65% responded that they have seen little or no impact on loan origination since October 1, which is when the new policies began to be issued. And only about 20% said they felt unprepared for handling renewals on or after April 1. So all of this supports the point that lender requirements are largely unaffected by risk Mm rating 2.0. And this is a point I'll I'll emphasize is that risk rating 2.0 has no effect on the mandatory purchase requirements, nor on the flood determination okay. that we provide, nor on life of loan monitoring. All of this remains remain the same. That's important, yeah. It is, and and so one thing to, I wanna refer folks to on FEMA's website, uh, so it's fema.gov backslash NFIP transformation, all ran together, NFIP transformation. If you go there, folks can look for the what's changing and what's not changing table. It's a nice summary at a glance, you can kind of see, okay, what is changing and what's not changing with respect to the NFIP. And and so in addition to that table, I do have some practical advice, if I may, uh, for for lenders, banks, and mortgage servicers. And and one is around the the premium change. Of course, that's the big Mm -hmm. question. Who's changing? How much? What's the decrease? What's the increase? Which of my customers are going to see? Long-term affordability concerns. So, one thing to keep in mind with the changes on renewals is the increases for primary residences will be capped at 18% per year. Uh, but that ah, does okay. not apply to second homes, nor investment properties, nor does it apply to commercial buildings. So, okay. when the servicer sees, uh, when they understand changes are coming, they're they're probably thinking in terms of escrow impact, right? They're they're going to have to adjust escrow amounts either either to pay more for flood insurance or to pay less for flood insurance. Okay. But given that NFIP policies uh, historically have changed year over year, just not in the same way, but there have been changes, this should not be new territory for for services, so so they should be comfortable, uh, but just be aware that changes in escrow are coming. What okay. what they can need to also prepare for is questions. So questions from their frontline call agents are going to get questions from borrowers. Okay. Now, what we suggest, and the NFIP supports this, is that servicers and lenders are not in a position to answer questions about why a policy is going to increase or decrease. Those need to be directed to the agent. And that's, okay. what, we, that's what NFIP suggests. Uh, direct those borrowers to their insurance agents to have those conversations about okay. change Okay.
0: What kind of questions do you anticipate that might come or that questions that people should be asking?
1: So, in addition to questions about why the change, right, and, and what am I going to do about it, there may be some questions about uh, how why my neighbor is experiencing something different than I am and why my, another another question might be why my preferred risk policy is going away. And that's something I want to call attention to is that this, this low risk flood insurance product that the NFIP has has uh, supported for 30 years, the preferred risk policy or PRP as people commonly call it, that is no okay. longer an option. And so, uh, right. okay. so now... Uh, servicers should look at their call scripts because in those call scripts they may have reference to the preferred risk policy or may even direct a borrower to go to FEMA to apply for a letter of map amendment for the express purpose of obtaining a preferred risk policy. They just need okay. to look at that and be sure that their call scripts for their frontline agents are updated. That uh, Yes, you can still obtain a, a letter of map amendment from FEMA, but it's not for the purpose of obtaining
0: Policy. Okay, interesting. That that's super helpful, and and I'm I'm glad we got into that. So the next thing I wanted to talk about, you you mentioned a couple of dates there, and we we did mention earlier that this risk rating framework was officially unveiled in October of last year. But policies that are affected without the option of being grandfathered into some legacy rating plans will be those that are renewing in April. And that's not very far away. Um, some lawmakers have pushed FEMA to delay that rollout of the new system, fearing that the premium increases for homeowners will you know, not be great. What do you think about all of this?
1: Well, you're right that existing policies that have been renewing for years within the legacy system will be moving over to risk rating 2.0 beginning as of April 1 and over the next 12 months. You're also right that this has caused concern in Congress and in various states, particularly in mm-hmm. coastal regions, about the impact in terms of affordability for uh, for families as well as for you think about small business owners and possible market impacts there. So I'm sensitive to this, and, and I know importantly that FEMA, FEMA officials in conversations I've had with them, they're of course very aware and very sensitive to this as well. So what. FEMA highlights is is important that in, in 2018, FEMA released an affordability framework at the direction of uh, Congress, by the uh, way. Congress directed them to do this. Okay. And they released yeah. it and it includes several options for how to assist those facing changes, challenges with the cost of, of flood insurance. And okay. So, importantly, I think. Those options need to be considered, which again, I will refer people to the affordability framework by FEMA. But keep in mind uh, that there is the current cap of 18% that I mentioned earlier. So it's not as though on renewals that you're going to have policyholders that all of a sudden see a 5,000% increase in the premium. That's not the reality of the year. Okay. the It is going to be capped at 18%. However, when that policyholder receives their declarations page, They will have a line of sight into that full risk premium, as it's called on the declaration. So they will see long term what they're ultimately going to face in terms of premium. And that, of course, may drive concerns about long term uh, viability in that home or in that. Sure.
0: Sure. Well, when we think about long term, Another thing that comes to mind is climate change. Climate change is all around us, it's everywhere. And I think in addition to increasing premiums, this plan has been criticized by some on failing to address for climate change in the future. So how do you interpret this from from some of these groups that are saying this? What, What are your thoughts
1: on that? Well, that's a, that's an important question, uh, um, And this is probably an appropriate time to take a, a quick step back with respect to FEMA's flood program because it's, it's more than flood insurance. So people describe the FEMA's flood program for the nation as a four-legged stool. Four legs okay. being flood insurance, flood management, flood mapping, and mitigation. So okay. the idea is that it requires all four legs of the stool to lead to a more flood resilient nation. So, the question may be Will climate change sink the stool? So, no matter how strong the legs are, you're just going to, is climate change going to put it underwater? Right. So, an important thing is that FEMA is, is considering climate change now and the impacts on all aspects to the program. So, for example, there was a recent public comment period that closed on a request for information that FEMA opened late last year to gather information on how to prepare the nation to be more. Resilient, including uh, based on the impacts of climate change, and one of the questions FEMA asked was, "Should FEMA include projections of climate change impacts, including sea level rise, on its floodplain management standards for the nation?" Okay. So to me, this obviously says FEMA is looking at it. Yeah. And core, core logic for our part, we did respond to that RFI, the request for information, and we did respond to this direct question on climate change's impacts. So I encourage folks to go. To regulations.gov, and you can read the core logic response to public information because in there we provide some results of, of our own analysis of the future impact of flooding based on projections from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change.
0: Perfect. That, um, thank you for sharing that. That's great because the the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, really is the one of those. Um, bodies that does regulate a lot of information that's out there so I'm, I'm glad that we were able to contribute to that. Um, if we look at insurance for flooding uh, this is something that's really evolved over the last couple of years. Um, I mean A decade ago, probably even less than that, FEMA was the only option. The NFIP, the National Flood Insurance Program, was the only option. But in the last few years, and really, I think it's since Hurricane Harvey, maybe some of the other hurricanes, but when we've seen this very bad flooding, we've seen this uptake in private flood insurance. Is there an option to select private flood insurance? Or is, I mean, NFIP is not the only option anymore.
1: You're right. This topic comes up a lot in my conversations with um, with banks and mortgage companies, and, and your memory is, is, is good on the timing of this. The short answer is yes, that borrowers have more options today than they ever have had in the past. And yeah. the reasons go back to technology and progress, as I described earlier. 50 years ago, mm-hmm. the private industry did not have confidence in that it could insure against the of flood. But because of data and technology, and I mentioned core logic flood catastrophe yeah. models earlier, the insurance industry is now at a point of viewing this as viable and profitable. And so since 2019, the federal regulations governing banks and other lending institutions explicitly provide for a lender's ability to rely on a private flood insurance policy to satisfy the Perfect. federal flood insurance requirements. So in those, I mentioned recent discussions with lenders, the expectation is that due to risk rate 2.0, that we will likely see an increase in borrowers shopping around to compare prices in the private market yeah. against the NFIP under risk rating 2.0. Thus, my suggestion for lenders and services is to ensure your teams and your vendors are ready to review those private flood checklists that you created back in 2019. And, 2020.
0: and really an opportunity for those in the insurance space of that business opportunity for them, that this could be an, an option now that it is available. Uh, advantages of selecting private front insurances, disadvantages versus the NFIP?
1: Yeah, I'd say the most important thing today is is for folks to comparison shop. So it's kind yeah. of like, uh, you know, shopping for auto insurance, and and but it's, it's important. It's not just about price. So this is a key thing uh, with respect to comparison shopping for, for fund insurance is it goes beyond merely comparing the price. And you, a consumer will definitely want to compare uh, the products in addition to the price. So mm-hmm. folks may not be aware that there is a federally prescribed disclosure that is given to borrowers who are going to close a mortgage on a home in a high-risk flood zone. And as of 2015, this disclosure includes a directive to the borrowers to compare the flood insurance coverage, deductibles, exclusions, conditions, and premium associated with both NFIP and private and to discuss those differences with the insurance agent. So as an example, just yesterday I received a call from a credit union uh, representative and she asked me why the NFIP policy did not include additional living expenses, something you would think is is common in a a private hazard policy. So the reason Hmm. she was asking is one of her members was displaced from their home several weeks due to flood. Uh-huh. And I explained that, to keep in mind that the FIP is a federal-backed policy, yeah. a federal-backed program, so to contain costs that could ultimately have to be passed on to taxpayers, Congress intentionally limited the coverage and did not include all the bells and whistles that the, the private candidate might offer, including... Sure, yeah, programs. okay. So a further example on that is the, the $250,000 limit. You're probably familiar with that yeah. for a residential home under NFIP, you can't buy more than $250,000 and that's been in place since 94. So certainly, you, know, the, it, you wanna compare, you wanna compare everything from the coverages, from the limits to the exclusions and the premiums. And FEMA and Congress are sensitive to this and so they are looking at ways to perhaps modernize the NFIP policy, okay. but in the meantime, Yes, take advantage, look out there, shop, talk to uh, insurance agents and brokers and see what's best for your home and your business.
0: Yeah, shop around, that's the key message there. So, okay, just to wrap up today, Scott, Resilience is one of my favorite words. And here at CoreLogic, we, our little tag phrase is, know your risk to help accelerate your recovery. And we are all about awareness. I mean, one of my biggest passions as a hazard scientist and background in my life is awareness and raising risk awareness. I would hope that these changes in the more availability of flood insurance now would help raise the awareness of flood risk and the importance of having flood insurance. What do you think about this? Like, how would such a shift be so important to the mortgage industry at large? Are there opportunities to becoming a more flood resilient nation? Like, do we think that this is going to be enough to really spark people to try and start to get flood insurance? Or dare I say it, do we need another really bad event where people are heavily uninsured to raise awareness, to make them realize that they need flood insurance? What What do you think, is this going to be enough to get people to take action?
1: Well, I, sh- I share your hope, Niclara. I As I as I think about risk rating 2.0, as time goes forward, I do see risk rating 2.0 as breaking down some of the walls, as, as dispelling great. some of the misconceptions about flood risk. And but as those walls come down, that more property owners and business owners choose to purchase flood insurance, whether or not really their, their, their bank requires it or, or doesn't. Yeah. As you know, May clear, I'm a strong supporter of the federal mandatory purchase of flood insurance guidelines for banks. And apparently I'm not alone. There was a recent uh, Fannie Mae survey and a result of that. One finding was about two thirds of the respondents agree that there should be a flood insurance requirement for properties in the high-risk flood zone. But I Mm -hmm. stress that this is a minimum requirement. So as with any minimum requirement, it's really a safety net for banks, investors, borrowers, and taxpayers. What we need to do and what Risk Rain 2.0 is starting to do is to, again, break down the walls, blur the lines of the flood zones, so now lenders can consider data to help them make decisions on mortgages for buildings outside of the high-risk flood zone. Insurance agents can start to have more informed conversations about flood risk across the spectrum of risk, and ultimately, as you point out, homeowners and business owners can make the right decision based on more information to ultimately purchase flood insurance to cover their homes and business. I mean, all of this is just one part of building a path towards a more flood resilient nation.
0: Well, that is a fantastic place for us to end today, Scott. So. Thank you so much for joining me today on Core Conversations a Core CoreLogic podcast. I'm thrilled that we got to kick off season two with you today, Scott. Thanks. Yeah. And thank you for listening. Thanks for coming back to joining us for season two. I guarantee you we've got some exciting topics lined up and exciting guests lined up for the next season. So I hope you've enjoyed our latest episode. Please remember to leave us a review and let us know your thoughts and subscribe wherever you get your podcast to be notified when new episodes are released. And thanks to the team for helping bring this podcast to life. Producer Jesse DeVenez, editor and sound engineer Romeo Roman, and social media by Sarah Buck. Tune in next time for another CORE Conversation.